Hey, this is Jamie Pride, and welcome to episode 18 of the Failure Proof Podcast. everyone, my name is Jamie Pride and thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, resilience and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. If you are enjoying the podcast, please spread the word and if you could rate us on iTunes, that would also be great. On today's show, I am joined by Matt Allen. Matt is a natural dot connector. He is the Venture Capital BD Manager at AWS for Australia and New Zealand and a partner at Startmate, one of Australia's best-known startup accelerators. He, along with his wife, April, is a prolific angel investor with a portfolio of 14 companies, three Startmate cohorts, and two VC funds. Prior to joining Amazon Web Services, he ran Look Ahead Search in Melbourne and has been the co-founder of three startups. Mixed in there, he ran a wireless ISP, a hosting company. He also plays the bass and lived on a farm. He's a really interesting guy. When not talking shop about startups, he's hanging out with his two sons and his Model S Tesla, he's one of those people, um, or flying his drone. Uh, his favorite question is, what next? In this interview, Matt speaks about his first business, uh, what he learned, and the personal impact it had on him. He also talks about how he diversifies risk, his approach to angel investing, and he discusses what makes a good co-founder. There's also a great segment in this interview about why it's important to let founders take money off the table during funding rounds um, that I think if you're in the startup world, you'll definitely take something away from. And today I'm joined by Matt Allen on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, uh, it's all right. So we can go back to the beginning. Um, back to the beginning. Yeah, good back place to, the to start. Uh, so I've been a bit of a geek, um, you know, ever since uh, high school, really, or beforehand, you know, playing with computers when the internet was still dialing up. What was your first computer? Uh, I was at a Mac, a Mac LC575. Oh, that's a classic. That um, uh, It's still at my parents' place. Do you still got it? I don't have it. They it's have probably it. probably worth. No, I looked on eBay. It's no. not worth anything. <laughs> that was my thought too. No. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I was, I was a Mac guy, you know, dialing up back in the day. But um, I, I guess throughout my... Um, my uh, education, high school career, um, um, I did three net computers um, for the first time I was ever, ever offered ever in um, in New South Wales. Yep. Um, but I was the only person in the class. No. So all I did was dial up to the internet all day long. <laughs> Surf the internet. Surf the internet. That's built a few awesome. web pages and uh, figured out how this internet thing works. Yep. Um, after that, I, uh, I my... my my uh, my tech career actually started um, OneNet. You remember OneNet? Yeah. Part of OneTel. Yeah, I do. Yeah, so uh, tech support there. When, okay. Um, you know they were they were the cheap provider. Um, so you had to pay a buck ninety five a minute to call up tech support, and the queue was about forty five minutes deep. And that was just <laughs> so by the time they got to me, they were raging. People with their like, you know, yeah. my modem doesn't work. Yeah. Have you tried ticking TCP/IP? Have you turned it off and back on? Pretty much. <laughs> um. Uh, Quickly after that, um, I sort of moved into uh, helping businesses with their with their web stuff and sort of doing a little bit of web things on the side. Um, and then um, actually uh, went to work at a place called Hothouse, Hothouse Interactive, which was big in the day. Um, yeah. You know, worked on some pretty significant play- things like, um, you know, uh, uh, Vodafone, McDonald's, uh, the Olympics.com.au back in yep. the, you know, the late 90s. And um, sort of fell in love with uh, the web, you know, the concept of, of this distributed thing that, um, you know, you could get to people around the world. And, you know, having not uh, not been an engineer per se, uh, not sort of done tertiary education, um, just dived in, you know, learning yeah. learning that stuff, self-taught. Um, but that was, uh, that was fascinating to me that um, someone could, you know, sit in front of a web browser, view source and start building. Yeah. I guess building has been a, a technical building anyway. I'm hopeless physically building things. Yep. Um, but technically building things, you know, since since the mid-90s. Um, ran a hosting company back in the day. Mm-hmm. Had a couple of servers sitting on a desk at Zipworld, um, which was uh, taught me a lot about Linux. Yep. A couple of Red Hat 2 machines sitting around. Mm. Um, 
and hosted a couple of our uh, websites for some. Um, actually, got into the Australian music industry, so I used to host the websites for Grinspoon and Homebake, and did the websites for those guys, and sort of ran some community for for bands back in the day. Is that because you're interested in, in yeah. music? Yeah, that so was sort I was of a bit of a hobby. Yeah, so so music um, for me, I was in a band, and I used to, you know, Australian. What do you music, play? Play bass, bass guitar. Bass. I'm a bass player. Yeah, it's actually um the the. It's an actually the bass player um, uh, um, underappreciated. Yeah, but um, it actually I actually use the analogy to this day, and we'll probably circle back around to that. So ask me about bass player later. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, Australian music just felt really accessible. You know, yep. felt like I could go down to the Annandale and see these guys play on a Friday night, and go to home bake that and kind you know, of pub music scene. Yeah, just a, you know, good Aussie music, a lot of rock. Um, you know, Triple J type things. It was like it was right there. Mm. Um. And a lot of those guys wouldn't have had websites. Had no website, built a website, bought the domain name in my name, mm. you know. I remember once they're like, you're really helpful. Like, uh, what can we do for you? I'm like, buy me a digital camera. Mm. So they bought me a Kodak digital camera, you know, with an 8 meg card in it and mm. gave me access card, AAA passes to home bacon, you know, that kind of stuff and took lots of photos and, you know. There we are, building web stuff for bands and and kind of that was it. It was back in the day when – and I, I guess it's a theme, you know, like people kind of over-index on, the, on how, uh, you know, uh, hard it is to do this tech stuff. Mm. It, hasn't been tech, it hasn't been very hard for me just because I was just, you know, tinkering around with a lot of the time and sort of curious, a curiosity. And it's a probably a sense of curiosity that I think distinguishes yep. also, really good engineers from average ones. Yeah, curiosity and, 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 and being able to sort of get it done and get it out there. You know, um, there's a common theme throughout my career of sort of being the um, little bit of the the blunt object, get it done kind of guy. Yep. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of mates that are you know, well taught, proper engineers that will um, sharpen the sword until it's perfect. But I'm yep. a bit more of a hammer, more of a scrapper. <laughs> yeah, just sort of get it done, get it out there, and then kind of get onto the next thing, which is a, a again a bit of a theme that runs on. Yep. Um, yeah, so um, my first startup, my first tech startup was in 99. I built a, uh, a platform for insurance companies to allocate their work. Um, I remember it was, you know, running on three servers. It cost me 25 grand to buy and five grand a month to run. And, and uh, you know, that, that actually went on for, for quite a while. It went on for five years. It actually still runs to this day. Really? Yeah. So um, my co-founder and I sold out to another, uh, got another couple of directors in and then we exited and they run it to this day, which is Pretty crazy. I hope nobody touches the tech. Uh, they've rebuilt it. <laughs> if there's any founder code in there, God help me. But no, um, none of that anymore. So, you know. And how was that experience? Uh, really, really uh, hard. Uh, it was, uh, you know, we borrowed a lot of money from one of my co-founders' uh, parents, you know, invested a lot of so money. So it was the friends and family funding. The friends and family funding. Uh, you know, we got to the point where it was kind of neutral, buoyant, but not growing um you know um we were selling to insurance companies we had qbe and AMI and you know these huge things that was a web-based application so there was a bunch of new conversations to be had with enterprises on security and all kinds of stuff which was eye-opening and this is back in the day back in 99 2000 yeah uh back in the day which was uh, you know a learning curve i i um you know i used to put on a suit and go sit in the qb offices with my my co-founder who was sort of 10 years older than me and try and look legit try and look legit and he just said i used to look like a security you know security detail <laughs> um, um but uh it, it, i certainly learned a lot and certainly learned a lot around um uh you know solving those business problems you know um, what was your biggest lesson out of your first startup well the lesson was actually you know, i'll call it the end the end of my thing which was you know um i hit the wall really hard Yep. Like really hard. Um, personally? Personally. So uh, we had had our first kid yep. uh, about six months old and uh, I couldn't get off the couch. Like it was it was like the psychological runway ran out. After the business went under? No, no. So the business was okay. Like it was plodding along but I just ran out of energy. I couldn't right. get off the couch. I had to um, – uh, I ended up sending my wife back early from maternity leave which is something I regret to this day. Right. Uh, so I'm like I, need, I, I can't do this work anymore. How about I look after the kid and you get back to work because you've got a job. And that was exhaustion or just over it? I think it was exhaustion. I think it was, um, you know, the the constant of like what's going to happen next. Yeah, you know, we're kind of plodding along, we're slowly growing, um, being the tech guy. So I, I learned that the, the biggest lesson to take away there from me was um, I had all my eggs in that one basket, yeah. you know. I was the tech guy and at that point in time I was less interested in business. I was learning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, my takeaways from that was like diversify your risk a little bit and don't shy away from business. And mm. I think from that point on in 2005, um, I almost flipped my career around and I'm no longer the techie guy. I'm very much the business guy now. And yep. the irony is, is uh, the my my co-founder from back in there? Yeah. I'm still I'm advising him now. And right, he's the tech guy. He's building the tech. Wow, and I'm like, this is how you should run the business. Here's what the business model looks like. Here's how you scale it. Here's how you do it. So, in the span of it's 20 years this year since we met each other. Wow, um, we've actually had a utter role reversal. Which yeah, is, um, the tables which is really cool. The tables have turned. Yeah, and so you're sitting on the lounge, um, exhausted. Yep. Um, what went through your mind? It was just uh, so I was um. So we had borrowed, I think I owed about 400K. Shit. So, you know, borrowed a significant amount of money from my business partner's um, parents who had, you know, invested in the very. So I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm, so I went with that. How old would I have been? Uh, 15, yeah, 20, 10 years ago. No, no. What, that 2005. Uh, yeah, 13 years ago. So I was, you know, mid 20s. Yep. Like, I'm in debt to my eyeballs. You know, mm. I don't own anything. What am yep. I going to do? Um, and it was just it was just that constant crushing like shit. What do I do? Just the stress. I just didn't know what to do next. You know, like yep. I've only you know I, 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 we'd done okay, but it's not like it wasn't going anywhere where we we thought that we you know we'd sort of pushed our boundaries. You know, my my founder was my co-founder was a good guy, but not a sales guy. You know, we sort of sold on our Merrill's a tech guy. Yep. So we we actually grabbed um, you know some sales guys like ex head of IBM Australia, I think he was or something, and one of his you know, people he'd work with and sort of put them in place to sort of go out and sell. And then they, they bought the business office, which yep. was, which was you know, for me. So I walked away and paid my debt off. So you got out square. I got out square. And that was six years of my life in square, which I, oh. I count as a win. You know, a lot of Definitely. people wouldn't. But um, it was, it, you know, the, the day I paid that money back was like, okay, now I can sort of think about it. Did it feel like a weight off your shoulders? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was terrifying. Yep. terrifying to have that kind of you know debt hovering around you and like yes it was an investment you know in theory i could have yeah. just gone well you know that's it game over but i don't operate that way but a lot of people i think also fen friends and family debts worse right yeah because, because there's i mean don't get me wrong you treat all capital respectfully but um if it's you know at, at a very close you know relation or you know from your mom your dad mother-in-laws etc um it becomes i think even more of a weight on your shoulders because you feel like you know you're letting them down and what what the hell are you going to do yeah all that thing i i, I do you know if, if you're talking you know if people are professionally investing in you you know they know the risks yep. you know they're fully aware that this can go to zero and you know if it's an early stage venture like they, they expect it to go to zero yep. but you know your friends and family think you're doing a good job yeah you know and they'll hear what they want to hear yeah and, uh, you know, you hope you can return it. And, you know, I didn't give them any returns and it cost them five years worth of whatever returns they would have had. Yep. So I feel bad about that, but there's nothing I can do about it. No, but it's a much better outcome than zero. Yeah. yeah, yep. So you got out square and did that change your desire to continue in startups? Did you ever think about going, do you know what, it's not worth it, I'm going to go back to the corporate world? Um, well, no, not the corporate world. Um but I did, um, you know, so I went back to consulting. Right. So, you know, I needed to, um, I knew that I had the ability to, you know, to command a day rate that was, you know, that would at least allow me to claw, claw myself back again. Yep. So at that point in time, we actually moved to the country. So okay. we, we bought uh, 65 acres in a place called Greenwich Park, which is between Sydney and Canberra, down in yep. Goulburn. Built a house and went to the country. Yep. Took the six-month-old and just bucked and, it off. And did consulting remotely? Yeah. So I did remote consulting. I'd come to Sydney once a week. Yep. A couple of hours each way. Um and that worked pretty well. Actually, um, uh, the biggest problem you have living in the middle of nowhere on the end of 8Ks of dirt road, we didn't have very good internet. So I had like two-way satellite, which was just awful. Yep. So I actually went and found a um, – Which is uh, obviously pre the days of the NBN. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, so interestingly enough, so I went back and found uh, – I found the local ISP. Yep. And it was back – I don't remember. The government used to pay bounties to people getting onto broadband. Right. So um, I'm like, we should build a wireless ISP, like a terrestrial wireless. So we did. So the first thing I did was like via three hops of like solar-powered panels uh, and backstage like got internet out to my house. No way. Yeah. So I was like – and then, I, you know, so we'd, we'd be able to sort of go and stand on a hill and find some farmhouses and go, hey, would you guys like some internet? And they're like, yes, we would. So we'd hop it out there via – Microwave? Yeah, via like 5.4 gig back – Backhaul and then a 900 meg, you know, CB antenna with a with a little bit of Motorola gear on it and point the thing from the roof of their house and that have broadband. And I remember at one point in time, you know, sitting on my laptop on the end of one of these towers we built, that's got a couple of batteries and a solar panel and pulling 50 megabits and a cow walked by, 
you know, like, and this and is this is what we were doing. And we ended up covering like 200,000 square kilometers. It was just nuts. Um, wow. Just, and all we used to do was like, uh, you know, hire these diggers, put them on the back of the ute, drive out to a hill, give give the farmer free internet. Right. And, uh, and, and, and they were all happy. It was, it was really And cool. it was predominantly off the basis of a, of a personal need. Pretty much. I'm like, this two-way internet is really, really laggy. Yeah. Uh, it's awful to And how'd you go, how'd you go with country life? Because it sounds like you're a city boy originally. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in southwest Sydney, Liverpool, um, very much a city boy. I did go to an um, uh, agricultural high school. Yep. So I, I exposed to some of my friends were were farmers and, you know, I'd go out and visit them on the weekends, go to their farm. It was quite novel. Learn yep. how to ride motorbikes and yep. horses and stuff like that. Um, so I can do this. And, you know, the intent was like, let's go build a farm and and uh, ride motorbikes and have fun. Sounds like a good idea. Sounds a good idea. Turns out I'm awful at maintenance. Like I don't do... <laughs> physical labor. things, labor. It's not my thing. Turns out, however, um, so my neighbors were all sheep farmers. Right. And uh, they were uh, had a vested interest in me making sure my fences were secure and the weeds were sprayed. Right. And I had a pile of old laptops and stuff that I could give to them and their kids. And they were like, that's amazing. Do you want to fix your fence? I'm like, yeah, sure, thanks. <laughs> wow. So they would spray the weeds. Laptops for fences. Yeah, and internet, you know. So I became right. like the IT guy to these people. You know, I did join the fire brigade and became like the vice president of the fire brigade because, you know, that's awesome. like that's very much a there's very much a sense of community out there. But um, yep. I guess my uh, my conversations around around the th- the things that I was curious about, technology and, and and you know, the future were more around like, cool, how many sheep have you got? And, you know, like we need to fix this fire truck. <laughs> right. So I had to had to very much stay connected to the you know the city to to have those kind of conversations yeah and how long did you stay so you so you, you're back obviously so yeah so long? we five years um or so in the country sort of moved back in a little bit to barrel which is in the southern highlands mm. um so we sort of moved from 75 acres to three quarters of an acre down there it was a bit closer it's a bit yep. nicer it was a little isolated yeah but then we moved to melbourne so now yep. we live in um and the problem we were solving i was commuting from barrel to sydney every day yeah two hours each way it's a long commute so yeah, that was a problem we solved. I now live in, uh, in Brunswick East, and it takes me fifteen minutes to cycle to the to the office. So that's and, and so at some point in time, you decided to get back on the horse, so to speak, metaphorically, and and go back into technology companies and startups. Yeah. So after doing consulting, just doing web based consulting with a group of us that were you know building building stuff for people, um, I um uh, the the lesson about being uh, over-indexed on one thing and, and having all my eggs in one basket was a, was a really thing that I sort of went, how do I diversify my risk? How do I make sure that I no longer got, you know, everything coupled to one thing? Mm. So I um, actually, during my consulting, I really got excited about Xero, yep. the accounting platform. Yep. Um, having been, you know, a developer and sort of heading into the business side of things, it was like the perfect mix of business and dev, like uh, hooking to the API. So I ended up, one of my last consulting gigs, um, I uh, built a, a platform that uh, sits on top of Xero. And, mm-hmm. um, and that was really exciting working with Like Zero nine guys. spokes. Yeah, it's called Practice Ignition. Right. Um, and in that time, um, so I'd done a lot of work. I was the first and only uh, certified Xero dev that wasn't a Kiwi at the time. So right. this was really early. And we launched that thing at ZeroCon. And I, I really love Xero. So um, what I'd actually done was um, Zero was listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange. Yeah. And then they did a dual listing on the yeah. ASX. Yeah. So rightly or wrongly so, I um my wife I said to my wife April, I'm like, I really like the zero thing. I think it's gonna be big. So we set up a self managed super fund and dumped our entire super into zero on day one when it listed on um the Australian wow. Stock Exchange. Which was, you know, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was all we had. Yeah. Um, but that thing just went off like a rocket. Um so, you know, I was building on top of the platform, you know, sort of you know, consulting and also watching my SMSF go like a rocket. Yeah. You know, listed at five dollars and went up to forty bucks. Yep. Uh, so I pulled a bunch out. Um, April asked me to um, secure that capital into a, a, a in, you know, spread it around a little bit again. Yep. Um, but then, um, so yeah, so I took half the profit and put it into some, you know, balanced indexes, and the rest I started angel investing in. So, you know, to take my diversification thing, I started making investments, including Practice Ignition. I came back around, so I built the platform, then invested in the platform. Okay. Um, you know, with their first seed round and started investing. Um, and you know, I. I Having done the startup and done the tech startup and had been a technologist, um, there's not a lot of angel investors in Australia that are actually have a you know a technical background. Yep, a um, lot, lot of lot of business people. Um, but so it turns out I had this I have this view of the world, which is you know I can 
Built Tech with the best of them, or maybe, you know, at least with the, the blunt hammer of them. Yep. Um, and that's useful to a lot of founders, you know, can uh, advise on slightly different angles to most money manager type people. And it's probably an interesting perspective as an angel investor, one, in terms of just identifying whether or not it's a good piece of technology. And then secondly, yeah, you add, I think, advisory that's probably unusual, like technical advisory is hard to come by. It is from an agent investor because because a lot of technical people don't invest. No, it's it's true, and and um, you know, when I think about the the rest of my portfolio over time, you know, a lot of them are technical. Um, you know, the founders are, are technical, technical founders. So bridging that gap between capital, business, and tech mm. is this weird sort of um, you know sort of uh, gluing up of things. So yep. I can have what I think is come to rapport really quickly with technical founders. You know, dive a bit deep to figure out what they're doing. Um, understand the problems they're solving sometimes where a, a traditional investor may not. They're like, I don't understand why you're solving that problem. And having been, you know, inside engineering teams and built engineering teams, I can sort of appreciate things like dev tools and, and you know, fintech stuff more than some other people. Yep. And that's sort of worked out pretty well for me along the way. And so you mentioned April earlier. I mean, clearly a lot of entrepreneurs have to manage their home expectations as well. Yep. You guys sounds like you guys have been together for a long time. Yep. How do you – does she know what she was signing up for? And <laughs> do you, you guys got a pretty open relationship? It sounds like she uh, is like, yeah, put some of this money from zero aside. It sounds like she's yeah, a smart lady. She is. I mean, like, you know, I've, I've said it before and i said it again. Like, she's my she's my biggest investor, right? right. You know, like, we, we – I can't do what I do without, without her and it's either, you know – keeping me propped up psychologically or, you know, going out and getting the job so I can sort of focus on the things I've been doing. So we've constantly had this ebb and flow of who's sort of building and who's earning yep. um, over the last 20 years. Yep. Um, yeah, so, like, she knows. Like, she knows how I operate. And, and when when I'm like, hey, look at these on paper returns we've got, she's going, cool, well, you how about you? You can't uh, eat paper. <laughs> how about you, you know, you, liquid, you liquidize half of that and, yep. and go put it over there and don't touch it ever again and let it compound for the next 40 years. Yeah. Um, and then go have some fun with the other stuff. It's so, good um, to have that balance. It's really good. And it's been interesting, you know, so we have, I think we've had 11, 11 angel investments and she's done a couple herself now, which is okay. really exciting and, you know, sort of starting to think about, um, you know, our, our – how, as you said, how the how the industry sees us and what our unique view of the world is, and it's um it's really great. I'm so excited that she's out doing that too. That's fantastic. Um, so you made eleven angel investments, which is which is substantial, I guess, in in Australia. How do you determine what you invest in? Uh, a lot of the time, you know, it's it's rapport with our founder. You know, um, I, I make very few investments with people I don't know. Uh, in fact, I make zero investments in people I don't know. Yep. Um, I mean, I really like the people. I want to um, understand. A lot of the time I make investments in things that are quite invisible to other investors. Right. So, like, I have a lot of dev tools um, and quite often a traditional VC won't like that. They're like, oh, I'm not really sure what the problem is. I'm not sure the market's big enough. I'm like, well, if you've ever worked in a dev team or built one before, like I have when I ran my recruiting company, I'm like, there's a bunch of bad processes back there that this particular thing is going to make a whole bunch of devs happy. Yeah, you know, and um, and even if you look at the valuations on GitHub, right? I mean, yep. Dev Tools can certainly uh, yep. can certainly make money. Uh, they can, and um, the interesting thing about this is that um, is that a couple of my investments are have angel rounds and will never take VC. Like right. these, these are fast growing global companies that are not interested in VC. They and just took the bootstrap, and now they're going to self fund. One round profitable. I've literally got dividends coming out of out of one of them in the next month. Wow! Um, and they're a couple of years old, and they're growing. You know, ten percent month on month, and you know, it, it's. It's the kind of thing, and, and that's actually been an interesting thing. You know, as much as I love VC and I, I work with VCs for my job, yep. um, you know, and I actually think that there's a there's an amazing set of businesses that are not VC fundable, but, are, mm. you know, that need some capital to get going, and that's – I really like that. I really like thinking along those lines. Well, there's definitely an adage if you can not take capital, you shouldn't, you know, and uh, – Yeah, or different types of capital. I mean, like, you know, um, I think having some – you know, an angel who gets it, Yep. You know, you know, we all talk about smart money, and mm. the smart money is someone who you actually like. They click, you know, like holy, you, you get it, you know, and, and, yeah. And, well. and if you're talking about a problem that's not visible to everybody, mm. um, you know, that's and, and you find someone who gets it and has some capital to deploy, then like they're the people you need around you um, who are going to go on that journey with you. That's not necessarily going to um, expect those VC returns, but happy to mm. take happy to take stuff over time. So, what do you think makes a good founder? 
So I only invest in founders that you know, deeply understand their problem. Right. Um, I see way too many founders who observe something, think it's cool, you know, walk over next to it, start building something. Yep. But you know how hard it gets. Um, you know, like it's like if you if they walk away from this startup and the problem doesn't get out of their head, like that's the kind of person you need. You yep. know, you need to have something special. You need to have you know an insight into that thing that nobody else does. So somebody who's scratching an itch. Yep. And it, it, it may not be their personal itch, but they've certainly got experience with it. So, for instance, um, one of my startups is a CI and CD tool. You know, continuous employment, you know, integration and deployment, like a super nerdy tool. You, know, you use uh, engineering teams use to deploy their software. Um, those guys had built that thing three times. You and know, they like, built it for themselves. Yeah, probably. and they built it for the company uh, working at places like Envato and Pin Payments. And these are like they've seen the problem. They deeply understand the problem, and then they, you know, they build it. And um, which means that you know the interesting part about that is that, especially in my world of sort of engineers selling to engineers, is that you can have a really good conversation with a customer, and they'll buy it simply because it's good rather than the sales guy told them to. Yep. Um, you know, it really is a, a whole new different world when they're buying it purely, you know, it is solving a genuine problem that is mostly invisible to anyone who's not, you know, an engineering manager or an engineer. Yeah. And so in terms of sort of your own experiences with sort of being a founder and an entrepreneur, um, you know, I think that there's, I think, a lot of myths that, that new founders sort of have when they're coming into the ecosystem. Um, a lot of them aren't necessarily prepared for the, ebbs and flows and the ups and downs. Mm -hmm. um, do you see that in the founders that you're investing in? How do you counsel them? And, and you know, what's your view on on sort of founder welfare and, and, and taking care of yourself as a founder? Yeah, it's, um, I have strong opinions on it mostly because I've, I've lived it and yep. it, it hurts. It hurts when you don't get it right. You know, like founder fallout, you know, found, founders not seeing eye to eye is kind of the root cause of most things. Mm. Co-founders not getting on. Yeah. Co-founders not getting on, and I've been there. You know, I've been there. We've had, you know, had hard conversations. I've been, I've exited companies that, that, you know, two of us went in one direction, one went in the other direction, and we had to, had to, you know, work that out. Do you think co-founders um, select each other lightly? Because I see a lot of instances where I'm not sure if this is a broad generalization or not, but I see a lot of instances where, you know, you've got a, a commercial co-founder who needs some tech built and they'll go, okay, I need a tech co-founder. And they, it's sort of a marriage of convenience yep. rather than um, a deliberate, you know, what we both, we both have mutually valuable skills and we're going to date and we're going to understand our values and we're going to, because it is a marriage in yep. my view. Yeah, it is. And it's hard to unpick. It is. Um, so, like, the skill sets are given. You know, obviously, you know, you need a set of skills. Um, but, yeah, the worst thing you can do is have a, a technical founder who doesn't care about the problem. The problem, yep. And that's hard because a lot of techies love their tools. You know, they love building things. And, I mean, I, I've, I can be accused of it as well, which is, um, you know, like um, almost being agnostic to the problem. Mm. You know, cool, just give me a hard problem to solve and we'll go off and do it. Do you think a lot of technologists also like variety? So they want to work on different problems. Yep. And so it's hard to engage them over a longer period of time. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that, that is a, um, that is the, you know, it's almost the, a, a constant thing you see, you know, like, cool. Like I was saying earlier, I've solved that problem. Yeah. What's next? What's the next uh, shiny? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. You know, and, and, in reality, you know, when you're building a, a, a tech product using the latest shiny tech stack, it's probably not actually what you want, right? Mm -hmm. You actually want to get something done quickly, robustly, so get it in front of your customers <laughs> and they're happy. And then you might, you know, if you get it right, you might be able to buy yourself some time to re-platform onto mm. the new shiny at some stage. But well, it's an interesting thing you mentioned because um, for me, I'm, I'm technical enough to be dangerous. <laughs> and when I look at um, a, a startup and if it's using something exotic, Mm. It's usually an indicator for me, and not always, but it's usually an indicator that you've got a, a you know a CTO who's you know just wanting to do shiny things. When I see exotic languages or exotic frameworks, and I'm sitting there going, okay, you know, there's a pretty proven you know front end web dev stack that everybody's using yep. for a reason, yep. um, and it can be boring, um, but it's easy to hire people, and it's you know it's easy to find you know um, solutions and frameworks. And when I see um, you know really exotic technology yeah. it's usually indicated not always but sometimes it's not always but you're right like in especially front-end frameworks it's like what's the flavor of the month <laughs> yeah. and um you know i've seen especially when i was um you know recruiting some you know spent four years um building building out engineering teams um prior to prior to joining uh, amazon where i work now um 
and yeah, it's like, cool, we need to do this thing to hire the people. And next thing you know, the industry's changed its mind. Yep. And you're left with this weird yep. JavaScript stack that you can't hire anyone. No. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah. And so what do you think makes a good co-founding relationship? It's the same thing as we mentioned before. Like, you know, that problem, like, you know, you really you really got to fall in love with that problem. I mean, when I reflect onto my uh, onto my my startups that I've done, you know, as a co-founder is like, I, you know, the problem was kind of interesting, but not, it's not my problem. Right. It's the other person's problem. Yeah. It was the other person. I've got this great idea. I've got, I think I've got a solution. I need someone to build. I was literally that guy. Right. Five years later, I'm like, I just don't care. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, that's a long time to not care, you know? Yeah. So um, it's a challenge, right? Because, um, you know, a lot of the business problems are not, the risk at the moment, generally in my mind, is not that you can't build it. Because mm. a good techie, you know, even with you know, with the modern stack, you can sort of string some stuff together and kind of solve a business problem relatively quickly. Yep. For most of them, there's a lot of deep tech stuff out there that you know you need proper engineering. But definitely, let's assume it's something that you can sort of string it together. Um, so you know th- that you actually need to care about those customers. You know, if your mm. techie doesn't want to talk to your customers, you got problems. Yep. And look, I think you're right. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of startup. Um, misfortune begins with the co-founders yep. um, and disagreements and and I guess arguments over you're doing more work than I'm doing, you're yep. getting paid more or whatever the situation is yep. and, and you start to see it fracture. Mm-hmm. My view on the cycle is that there's a honeymoon period where everybody gets together and there's funding and that tends to smooth over a lot of the relationship issues associated with the co-founders. Yep. Um, as an investor and, and as a co-founder, founder myself i've spent a lot of time in marriage counseling you know essentially between between co-founders you know up to the point where it's almost chair throwing you know it's a pretty highly um i guess uh intimate environment right where you're you're working in close quarters with people um who are always passionate Mm -hmm. um and i think the more co-founders you add sometimes it becomes even more complex yep um, do you, when you're making investments, I think a lot of investors have this preference for multi-founders because they think that it spreads the risk and it's more complementary for skills versus a solo founder. Um, do you have a view? Um, thinking about my portfolio, there's a mix in there. Right. You know, some are solo people. Do you are, back solo founders? Yeah. I mean, um, not, well, I don't seek them out. Right. Um, but I do end up, being um, because I'm, uh, I think because just who I am, the nature I am, I do end up being quite often being that counselor, the counselor, and I, I actually kind of position that way. It's like cool, like you've got you've got some investors on your books now, you know, even at the angel round, like some of these people, you know, don't write very many checks, so it's just like you know they've just put some money in because they like you or you found them for whatever reason. Yeah, and I find myself quite often being the person that the founder will go to before they go to the other investors to talk about stuff. Yeah. So I was like, shit's good or shit's bad. Yep. You know, hey, I've got this idea. Can you help me edit it before I run it up to the rest of the investors? Yeah. And I don't mind that. Like I like being that first port of call. And, you know, in reality, um, being an angel investor, you know, I, I'd love some returns. But in, I'm backing a person. Predominantly. A person who's passionate about something. And I want to enable them and empower them to to get the right stuff done. Yep. Um, and quite often that means, you know, being closer to a friend than it is just someone who, you know, wrote a check and sort of moved on. Um you know, I speak to a lot of my founders most weeks. Yep. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of it's just, you know, arbitrary sort of chit chat sometimes, but sometimes it's cool, we're going to raise around again. Who do you know? Who should we talk to? That kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, look, I think one of the emerging problems I see, and, and I know KPMG just did some work on this, is founder burnout. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think, you know, if you've been around for a while, you know, it's a marathon and, uh, you know, you may not necessarily you know, get a home run at your first time at mm. plate, to use a, sport, as a sporting analogy. Um, I see a lot of, you know, numbing out. So there's a lot of drug and alcohol abuse in founders sort of, you know, um, sort of covering up their issues. There's a lot of sort of burnout, stress, anxiety. Um, you know, do you see that? You know, you obviously get exposed to a lot of startups mm. um, in your day job. Yep. Um, do you think that's a is it is it a surface issue or is it a real issue? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it just part of the? That's just the nature of the game. What's your view? Yeah, I'm not sure it's the nature of the game. I think there's um, um, you know, a lot of people see startup land as this you know tornado that is in high in, in, in you know pressure environment, which I think is true. Um, 
to a degree, but I think it's actually a choice. Um, and the choice comes um, you know, early on when you've got nothing and you've got no customers or whatever, then you need to obviously get something in front of people. But um, if you have the choice to be able to, you know, run a sort of do it in a calm way, if you have the right people around you, you should be able to do that. You know, I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, Basecamp and DHH who, you know, I was a, I was a Ruby dev and a Rails right. dev. So, you know, those guys run those guys run a calm company, you know, they, they just try and get it done. Like, But, you know, let's be clear, they took a couple million bucks off Bezos, at you know, beginning. right at the beginning and set themselves up. So I've have strong opinions on um, a founder's external um, circumstances being directly coupled to their ability to focus at work. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, again, you know, I, I, I invest in VC funds. I, I, I like that. But personally, I'm, I'm all about founders, you know, again, um, not having all their eggs in one basket. Mm. You know, my contrary opinion is that, you know, my contrarian opinion is that a founder should be able to take a little bit of money off the table every single time they raise. Yep. You know, you do a 200 grand investment, take a couple of grand off the table and pay the credit card off. You know, like yep. I, I think external pressure um, uh, is really hard. You know, like a lot of the times they can see on paper that they they look sideways at their peers and in theory on paper they're doing well, but they know that it's... But you can't eat shares. You can't eat shares and they know that the risk profile is still completely out of whack to the person next to them who's at the bank, right? I so, think that's a really interesting observation because a lot... I mean, that's contrary to most investors who would say founders don't get to take money off the table until very later in the game. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of them was like... You know, this, the, the, so the, the the assumption there is that if we let them hit the pressure relief valve too early, They'll, they the won't focus. The hustle will come off. Yeah, like, oh, you know, gonna, I'm going to tell you what, yeah. no founder I know is going to be excited because they got paid two grand off their credit card yep. or they paid half their car off yep. or they put a hundred grand in their mortgage. Like none, yep. none of the people I know, none of the people I no. know, would like all that do, all that does is allow them to refocus again and know that, you know, at a certain point in time that if this all goes to custard, that you know they've got a base to come back. Yeah, they got a base to come back to because I think that most people, uh, even the most resilient founders I know, knowing that if this all goes to if this goes to zero and then they've got you know especially if they start early, they don't have a lot there to sort of come back to. Mm. Like that's actually demotivating, not motivating. And uh, and the founders who are fund managers rather than founders, like people who haven't been in that situation before, mm. I, you know, like fuck you. That's that's right. that's it's not fair. Yep. And I guarantee you that if you can, if if they know that the worst case scenario now is that they've got half the house paid off. Yep. You know, they're going to go harder. And they're not going to be less mo- they're not going to be less motivated. I, look, I think having been there myself, mm. you know, I think it's a really really interesting observation which is your personal circumstances have to affect how you behave at work. Like they just do. And you know, if you're sitting there with kids and a mortgage mm-hmm. and you know, like the this uh, this view that everybody who's in the startup world is 20 and eating ramen noodles on their mother's lounge or their parents' lounge. It's just not true, right? Not- and and so if you don't have a partner who works, if if you've got kids, if you've got a mortgage, um, eventually, yeah, of course, the rewards um, for sweat equity are huge if they pay off. Most of the time they don't. Mm. Um, you know, it does build up in the back of your mind. You're going like, holy shit, this is getting worse. I'm getting deeper. I'm getting deeper. I'm getting deeper. Yep. And and there's certainly a stigma associated with trying to take some cash off the table early. Um, but I think I think it's a very good observation, which is it's it doesn't, it doesn't create what investors think it's going to create, which is it's going to be if I if I give them a little, let them take a little bit of cash off the table, they're going to be kicking back on a beach, um, you know, and they're not going to be hustling. Yep. and that's just not true. I mean, if you did if you did credit card car house on yep. seed A and B, yep, like I guarantee you that by the time the Series B is at a you know a significant valuation, and these guys goes worst case scenario. I can come back to a house that I own. Yep. Like they get just going to double down. Yep. Like no, like at which point, like no one's going to stop just because they've got that under control. Yeah. You know what I mean? But for me, it's like cool. So it actually adjusts the risk profile. Yep. Like it adjusts the risk profile along the way. You know, and you can dangle a carrot in front of someone forever, and you know, and and keep trying to. And, go, and, and these people going, aren't cashing out millions of dollars. We're, no. we're really just talking about taking a little bit of the pressure off. And if the founder is. Is ambitious as you hope they were that you backed them. Like yeah. knowing that they, knowing that they, um, you know, they own a house but will have to go take a job is yeah. actually far more motivating to go harder than it is to I own nothing and I got to go take a job. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it, it feels to me that, yeah, the 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 
the disconnect between what the risk profile of the business and the risk profile of the founder is, yep. especially after a while, after years, we're, t- we're not talking, yep. you know, in the first three months here, you know, no. like there's, we're talking, you know, you're doing these capital raises, which are taking, you know, every 12 to 18 months, you're sort of out to market to do this. Yep. I just think that, um, you know, uh, it's, it's utter bullshit that a VC can have a portfolio theory and a founder can't. Yep. Yep. And, and, but unfortunately that is, predominantly the way that investors invest today. And I think it's got to change. It's got to change because I think that it is absolutely a contributing factor to the sort of burnout, stress, anxiety that founders are feeling. Because I think that when I speak to founders, a lot of the stress they're feeling is, yeah, of course, there's business-related stress for sure, right? I mean, you know, if, if your business hasn't achieved product market fit, you know, and your customers aren't buying and you're still trying to pivot around an idea, yeah, that's totally stressful. But a lot of the stress is induced by the fact that, you know, they're not sleeping because they're not earning enough money, yep. they're, they're not paying their mortgage, you know, they, you know how they're going to pay their kids' school fees, all yep. of those things that – you know, of course, that is the alternative from having the safety and security of a regular job, yep. for sure. Um, but there has to be a middle ground, I, th- I think. There is. And I think, um, like, the thing that boggles my mind is the amount of – usually the amount of money we're talking about here is bullshit. Is, is, is such a fraction of a fraction compared to what the capital going into the business is. That had you just given this – like, and a lot of people go, well, we'll pay them a bigger salary – you know, and that's fair enough. It'll keep the wolves at bay. But ultimately, you know, not only do they want to be able to service this stuff, they kind of want to be able to get ahead as well yep. on a personal level. You know, yep. if you if you pause your personal life and then go and spend five years in your startup and, you know, like when things are all going well, that's great. And, yep. and, and you know, if you're raising capital, you manage to raise more capital, then things are going well. Yep. If things are going completely shit, you're not going to be able to raise more capital. But yep. the point is, is that um, like they are tightly coupled and I'm not convinced that, 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 um, capital people who have capital haven't been in that situation quite get it. No, and um, I, I'm a big believer. Look, I think one of the good things that's happening in the Australian VC industry is that more and more VCs are former founders because mm-hmm. I don't think unless you've been there. And it, look, of course, you know you can look at an investment thesis and you can, you know, academically understand what it means to be a founder. But unless you've stared into the abyss and gone fuck, I've got to go home and tell my spouse yeah. that we're going to lose the house mm-hmm. um, or not make payroll or, you know, all that's get up in the morning and vomit your guts up because you're stressed out. All of those things, I don't think you can appreciate the the pressure that founders are put under. I heard a story which is going to come up on a, on a, on a podcast episode um, about a VC who said to a founder, um, I'm not going to invest unless you're prepared to die for your startup, right? And – like I, I don't know if that was metaphorical or literal, but um, it's that kind of um, I think old school investment approach that I think is unhealthy. I also like I question sustainability, right? Like I, yeah. I question like if you're a VC, you've told your story to LPs who are like, "Cool, yep. we'll give you some money, go off and do your thing." Like they all tell you you're in for the long haul. Yep. You know, they say it's a long thing, so it's almost like a, it it it's counterintuitive to to have your founders on knife's edge which is actually risking the leadership of the business, which if that all goes to custard, mm. you know, the whole thing falls flat on its ass and you know you can't just send someone in to fix it. Like, like, like it feels to me those things should be in lockstep. But I think the elephant in the room, though, is that most VCs assume founders won't survive the B round, right? Like in a lot of instances, I think that some, not all, but some VCs think founders are disposable. Yeah, well, it's – I don't know. I don't. Know, I don't. I would rather look the other way and say, look, if they want to run this company forever, then how do we make sure that they that they you know that they feel connected, that they feel like they've got the support of the people around them, and that they, you know that the words to say we're here, we've got your back, we want you to grow a great company, and the actions of like, you know what, you've been at this thing for three years. It'd be really nice if you could just, you know, personally offset a little bit, yep. or a little bit forwards. And I mean, I speak to my VC mates here, and they're like, yeah, cool. Series B will allow them to do a little bit. I'm like, well, Series B is a long way away. Yep. You know, I think had you, you know, the, the risk, you know, you mentioned that, you know, they might fall out at Series B. We can't A-B test this stuff. But what yeah. happens is if in the, the three raises prior to that, yeah. that able to hit the pressure relief valve, it's a, such a fraction. Yeah. And they feel like the, they're, they're, they've got backers who are caring about them as much as they are about the company. Yeah. Because it's you can't pull the two apart. 
No, and, and I think, look, my view is um, I think a startup without its founder DNA, you know, loses a lot of its heart. It yep. doesn't mean that, you know, and I also think one of the interesting things is that you get this sort of adversarial relationship. So I think the two things that sort of break startups up is firstly, you know, co-founder disharmony. One of the other ones is investor-founder disharmony, which yep. also happens, you know, around valuation and operation of the company. One of the things I think that exacerbates that is that if you're in a um, – um, and a very defensive mindset where you're like you're struggling um, to keep yourself well because you're stressed out because potentially you could be financially strained, mm. um, then you tend to be just more adversarial yeah. anyway, right? And so this idea that um, founders become unmanageable, they become aggressive, they're hostile to their boards and they're like, you know, screw you guys, I'm going to do it my way. Um, I think a lot of that is seeded in the fact that you get this sort of, you know, you know, you're not. We're not in this together. Our interests mm-hmm. aren't aligned. Um, I, I'm of the belief that you know one of the one of the kind of realities is that most founders aren't well suited to be the CEOs of their business longer term because they're not passionate about it. Right? They may be passionate about the product or the customer or whatever. That's not that's not generally true, but but in a lot of instances it is. But founders aren't willing to give that role up because they're just in this sort of adversarial view. And I think that if you did leave, allow them to take some of the pressure off, they'd be more inclined to go, do you know what? Yeah, look, let me be the head of product or let me go and do something I really enjoy. I'm making money, I'm doing it. I don't have to be the CEO yeah. of the business or I don't have to be the head of sales because um, that's what commands the highest salary in the business and I need it to survive. Um, I think that founders are going to be more inclined to be, you know, I think – coachable and open to sort of saying, okay, well, I don't need to run the business, but I want to be in the business, but I want to be able to make some money. I think that's one of the really interesting components of what you're saying. Yeah, and I mean, like, uh, I agree with you that not all, like, you know, if you were to plot over time, you know, the growth of the company and the growth of the founder, you know, if that if it was one line there because they did the exact same growth at the exact same rate is nice, but that really happens, right? Yep. It's either, either the company's going too slow and they're going. They want to go faster, and the right. company can't keep up because you know it hasn't got product market fit, or the other way around, which is a company's going like crazy, and they're just trying to keep the wheels on. Yep. Um, yeah, but either way, like you know, not that, not that I'm. Uh, you know, you want to compare yourself to your peers, but you know, everyone's most people have a partner. Yep. And they're out talking to their friends, and they're like, you know, well, they've got, you know, they're at this stage of their life. Yep. You know, and if, if you're looking sideways and going, you know, if you can just keep them in, in lockstep and, and not too far behind, mm. um, you know, in theory, yeah, look, if this all works well, then they're going to, you know, leapfrog ahead. Yeah. But that external pressure of the family and, the and, and, and you know, and like you, you keep telling us this is going to happen and things yeah. always take longer than they do. Yeah. Like that, I think people underestimate that, the the compounding pressure that, of, of that. And like, like when is this going to happen? You keep saying this is going to happen you know, especially, and you know, this is this is not true for startups that are a rocket. You know, that are going no. like crazy. You know, it's for the rest of them, which is the majority. One would argue, yep, that are like, you know, things are taking a little while, and you know, it's not a given that the next um, event horizon is going to be easy. So it's you know ha- keeping the keeping the the peace, mm. you know, the personal peace. Um, you know, a lot of investors, I assume, say that's not my problem. Oh, bullshit. It no, is it is your absolutely problem. your problem. Yeah. Um, and, and look, I think I look, and you're absolutely right. I think that there's. Um, a reality distortion field because we've got, you know, whatever it ends up being, 5% of all startups that end up being unicorns in like two, three years, whatever you've got, you know, astro- they are just, they are anomalies. Mm. Um, they don't represent what a normal, you know, startup journey looks like. It's long, it's arduous, you know, it's filled with risk um, and it takes five, eight, ten years mm. You know, for that business, if it even if it's a good business that has product market fit, yep. um, to come to fruition, um, and so I think that I think there's two components to that, which is which is one, investors need to better align with the needs of founders and businesses because, you know, ultimately you are investing in a very small group of people who are are going to be responsible for the success or failure of that startup. The other thing is also I think founders need to think more over a longer term as well in a sense that a lot of them do burn themselves out over the short term because they go, look, I'm just going to get to this cap raise and then everything's going to be okay or just push this out. And, you know, I don't think a lot of founders even in their mind go, this is going to be a 10-year journey or an eight-year journey. Yeah. Yeah, and if you've never done it before, you haven't been exposed to it, then it's hard to know, right? Mm. You don't know what you don't know. Um, and there's always that like that event horizon, the next raise, the next launch, the next whatever is the thing that's sort of on the forefront of your mind. Uh, you know, a lot of my founders, um, you know, I encourage them 
or I see them especially, you know, doing stuff outside of work and trying to get that balance right. Mm. I think the balance is, um, you know, it needs to be self-driven. Yeah. Um, and I'm as bad as anyone else of getting, you know, eyebrows deep in a thing that I'm doing and forgoing the exercise or whatever the case may be. But, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, when you do it, it's, it's a good idea. Yep. <laughs> you should do it. And, and I think it's partly because in the DNA of a lot of entrepreneurs, they are just single-minded. You know, a lot of them are A-type. I'm just going to bury myself in my business and I'm just going to work at it. Part of it is also there's an expectation that if you're not working on your business 24 hours a day, you're not committed. Um, but but I think that the, the founders that I've met who are the most balanced and the less – like aggressive and, and open to coaching and open to, you know, building good relationships are the ones that have outside interests that have got hobbies, yep. that spend time with their family, that sleep well, that actually do prioritise in their own way um, life outside of their startup. Yeah, and, you know, I'm a huge proponent of sleep. Like it's, 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 mm. it's non-negotiable. It really, like it really does creep up on you. And, you know, like it's it's really hard to do. It's hard to put the phone down. It's hard to go to bed early. It's hard to not feel like you're wasting time. Mm. But it, it's, you know, I mentioned earlier I don't like maintenance, you know, like yeah. preventative, preventative maintenance. maintenance. My um my dad is the king of preventative maintenance. And I'm like, what are you doing? It's not even broken. He's like, yeah, yeah but it will be if I don't fix it now, yeah. you know. And, and I think sleep is, is, the, is the preventative maintenance for people. You yeah, know, and it, it's it it's it doesn't have an immediate. I mean, it it you know the next day it might feel bad if you don't do it, but you know it is that really negative compounding effect and the preventative maintenance of, you know, keeping your head in the game. Yeah, I, I um, I work with a lot of founders. I've probably worked with over six hundred founders in the past eighteen months in in various guises, and I would suggest that of all of the physical issues that founders experience, lack of sleep, insomnia, either self induced or or uh, otherwise is probably the single biggest issue that founders face. Like if I speak to them, they're either um, I'm not sleeping and it's a badge of honour because I watch Gary Vaynerchuk and I'm just all about the hustle, yeah. um, or alternatively I'm worrying my ass off mm. um, and my head is full of you know a bunch of stuff, either positive or negative, and I can't get to sleep. And I think it's a cycle. I know myself that if I don't sleep – um, it affects my relationships because I'm just irritable, right? Mm -hmm. I just I get up and I'm like I'm not a morning person at the best of times, <laughs> but I get up and I'm like I can't deal with your shit. I'm going to just be curt, aggressive. I'm going to make um, potentially you know rash decisions. Um, I'm not going to be creative at all because I've just got no capacity. I'm just in that sort of survival mode, um, and uh, you know for me I just think. Uh, I'm, I'm just not going to be at my peak, mm. and and I just see a lot of founders who struggle with sleep. Yep. Yeah. It's a. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I see. It, you know, I see it with my kids as well. You know, yeah. you, you we we have some pretty strictly enforced go to bed hours. Yeah. Um. You know, the teenager doesn't like it, but um. Yep. You know, no phones, go to bed. You know, yep. by all means, read a book, but you can only read a book for so long before yeah. you <laughs> fall asleep on your head. Um. But yeah, it has a big impact. Like it's it's a, there's a direct correlation between you know um that sleep and the ability to um or at least uh, you know enforcing that go now like for me it's like if i don't get eight hours uh, you know, i need to work backwards when i need to get up so this yeah. morning i was on a six o'clock flight to sydney from yeah. melbourne you know and i worked back, i was in bed at nine o'clock last night and asleep do you have hacks for getting yourself to sleep or have you always just been an easy sleeper no so i uh going to sleep's not a problem for me if i'm stressed i wake up super early right so i'll be awake at four o'clock in the morning and not be able to get back to sleep again. So that's a sign for me if I've got shit in my brain that, uh, you oh. know, I'll wake up early. Like getting to sleep's not a problem. Yeah. Disrupt to sleep, but you can get to sleep. Get to sleep, stay asleep, wake up early. I'm like, oh, God, it's four o'clock. Yeah. Unless I need to get on a plane. <laughs> yeah, uh, when I need to get on a plane, like I'm one of those people who like then looks over at their, wa their watch and goes, it's four o'clock. I need to be up at six. Yeah. Oh, no, it's 4.30. It's yeah. five o'clock. It's 5.30. <laughs> Annoying, yeah. I'm like, it, it, it's terrible. Um, but but you don't have necessarily a, a structured process to sleep, but, you, but you're – you know, no. but you're not not too bad. No, luckily, like I, that, you know, the the times when I have been super stressed is, um, if it, I guess, due to just being exhausted, being able to fall asleep. But yeah, getting up early and that has a like, the same effect of not going to bed early, right? Mm. You're still not getting enough just at the front of the day rather than the end of the day. Yep. 
Makes you super sleepy at three o'clock. Yeah, no def- def- definitely. Um, so pretty busy guy in your day job. Yep. Um, how do you manage your productivity? Are you uh, uh, like I just sort of get up and, and do what I need to get done? Are you uh, like I have a regimented routine around, you know, what I do in the morning and how I manage my diary? I mean, different people, different approaches. Yeah, no one's ever used the word regimented in me at the same time. <laughs> No, look. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it is um is a bit um reactive. Yep. Um. So my day job is I uh, work on the startup team at AWS. Yep. So you know my day is dealing with uh, VCs and and their portfolios. Um. You know, and I do have things that I want to proactively do. Yep. But a lot of the time, the rest of the organization you know needs needs me to do stuff, and I'm sort of getting things flung at me, which I'm dealing with. Um. You know, I do. I do have some structure around. Um, I, I'm a partner at Startmate as well. So yep. you know, at the moment, the Melbourne cohort's in play. So it's my local, so I don't have to travel to see them. So I hang out with them and schedule some time to to just. Um, you know, hang out with the companies and yep. and do what I need to do to help them. And in that role, it's sort of a mentor. Yep. Um, are you providing predominantly technical mentorship or just general mentorship? And and how do you go about mentoring somebody? Like, is it you know, it's different for every person, obviously. But yep. do you have a an, a, a sort of a, a general philosophy around mentoring? Uh, so, the first part of the question is it technical or general? Um, it, it ebbs and flows. Yep. So yesterday I was helping a founder, you know, migrate their site. Yep. Um, because I could, they needed help. They're a non-technical founder, so I just jumped in and helped them. Um, and then generally, it's, it's it's business stuff. You know, um, working with the VCs in the country and around the world, I can certainly make connections, which I enjoy doing. Mm. Um, helping them getting ready for that, so they don't they don't you know they they paint themselves in the best light. Um, do I have any structure? No. Um, again, I, I I guess I get I get pretty like. Uh, I was going to say personally close, not personally close, but you know, like I, I like to understand like where their heads at, and it's not all about the business. You know, trying yeah. to understand, and a lot of the time, it's making sure the co-founders are on the same page, mm. um, especially if they've um, you know they come from different backgrounds or whatever. And trying to understand that you know that that the business is like the third part of this triangle, and mm. you know, like if you look at look at the way the founders are treating each other from a lens of looking from the business back, yep. like are you guys doing the right thing for each other to support this business? It's like, you know, if you think about, you know, your relationship with your wife, it's like there's like you, me, and there's us. Yep. And you start off the same as you, me, and there's us. You know, yep. like an us is a startup and it needs things. It's got it needs things to get done that are very tactical and sometimes they're, you know, they're more philosophical. But, you know, if everybody's sort of I think about like a triangle with lines going between them, if they're if they're not the right weight at the right time, they're too thin or they're too thick, it can really throw things off kilter. Yep. So I try and use that analogy to say, like, you know, what, are you doing the right thing that needs to be done right now for each other and then yep. for the entity? And it's quite interesting. Like, oh, actually, you know, we need to do that today and we didn't get that done. And I do enjoy, you know, I do some coaching as well. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, what are we going to do this week? Getting it done, coming back, reporting on it and off we go. So it's yep. seeing some cadence and some movement is always exciting. It is. I um, I always find it interesting where I see a lot of co-founders don't spend enough time focusing on their own relationship. So like spending time outside of the business, you know, I've seen co-founders do it in different ways. Um, when one, with one of my co-founders, you know, we have a catch up, you know, every couple of weeks, we'll have dinner, whatever, and just not talk about the business. Just like, how's going? What's going on? What's going on with your family? Um, just to maintain the relationship because, because it is – um, a situation where you'll probably spend more time with your co-founder than you will with your partner yep. in a lot of instances. Um, and if that relationship's bad, uh, it can be an absolute hell. Um, and if it's good, like then you're going, okay, I've got somebody I can share the load with and, you know, I, I think that there's, there's, there's benefits. Yeah, uh, a couple of, you know, interesting when you see sort of co-founders, whether or not they're aligned or whether or not they feel like they're a bit combative. Mm. You know, and that's when there's like egos come into play. And like a lot of the time this comes down to checking one's ego, you know, yeah. like and just knowing like it's not me versus you, it's us versus them, you know. Yeah. And and if we're not, if we can't, you know, I can't present the picture of like be humble and like, you know, being able to ask for help even. Yep. You know, that quite often requires you to check your ego, go, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need some help. And if that's the person who, you know, especially if um, the co-founders are of different kind of levels and one's a bit older or one's a bit more experienced, you quite often see. The yeah, when there's a power. To, when, yeah, the, the power dynamic may not be as one-to-one as you, you'd expect it to, but yeah. like the quicker you can get to parity mm. and know that, you know, even the, you know, that being able to ask for help from your co-founder, being able to be quite honest and open with them, is going to lead to better rapport, which is going to be lead you to, to burying less problems, which mm. you can then talk about it. And 
you know, being quite often that guy that they're like, I've got having two conversations at once, you know, with two different co-founders going, yeah. you guys, you just need to talk to each other. Yeah. Like, let me help you facilitate that. But it's, um, yeah, have a conversation. Yeah. It. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, so we'll just finish off with a quick, couple of quick fire questions, if sure. that's okay. Yeah. Favorite book? Yeah, so um, um, I, I've been reading a lot of um, uh, uh, crime novels lately. Really? Yeah. Um, there, there's a uh, there's a, a series called Bosch, okay. and Amazon actually turned it into a um into a series, a series? on Prime. Yeah. But the books are great. It's just, they're so based a bit in of a LA. crime fiction. Well, only recently, so they're based in LA, and yeah. I um I spent some time in LA with my youngest son, uh, yeah. my oldest son, uh, earlier this year. So we just sort of hung around in LA for a week, and I'm just like, I I know where the places they're talking about now. So you can visualize it. Yeah. I love crime novels. I've I've just finished reading the Robert Galbraith. Series. Series, which are written by J.K. Rowling yeah, right. under a pseudonym, but huh. they're excellent. Um, they're on my list. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan. Um, favorite podcast or TED Talk? Yeah, so um, uh, I'm a little bit biased here, but um, my friend Ian Gardner um, opened the pod bay doors. You know, he, he's done a lot of deep dive. Uh, uh, try again. Uh, deep dives with the Australian tech industry. Yep. Um, so I really like uh, I really like listening to you know people unpack their thoughts on that kind of stuff, and you learn a lot about a lot of people and. You know, I, I think, um, you know, Australians do a pretty bad job of telling their story. Mm. You know, there's a lot of smart people that we talk to every day and you have a few light bulb moments like, holy hell, you did that? That's cool. You know, we just – Australia doesn't let us talk about that stuff very often. No, and I think we need to build more of that community. I mean, Ian's an amazing guy mm. and obviously, you know, a, a uh, iconic guy in the Australian startup ecosystem. So, yeah, yeah I love that podcast too. Uh, somebody you would invite to dinner, living or dead? Yeah, so um, this 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 was a tough one. Um, I actually think that um, uh, there's some uh, some founders around, just the local founders. You know, I actually think um, uh, Scott and Mike from Atlassian have done, you know, they've done sort of one thing really well. Mm. You know, they're branching out now, but those guys, um, you know, I I really enjoy seeing, um, especially Mike branch out into some bigger gnarly problems. Yeah, you know, solving some energy stuff and some education stuff, and and I think you know it's a for me that that inviting and having that conversation was cool. So you did one thing really well, and then you've sort of opened up scope. Um, and how does that sort of come back to the one thing? Like, how are you a better founder? At Atlassian, now you've got all these other cool things that you're thinking about, and how do you manage all that stuff? Yeah, having been a person that has uh, a lot of things going on at once and trying to get that done well. Yeah, I mean those guys are amazing. Uh, Australian startup that you think needs some a shout out, some some uh, some love and attention. Yeah, uh, you know, again, take my biases with a grain of salt because I'm an investor. But um, there's a company in Melbourne called Buildkite, okay. which is that CI and CD platform. So um, their customers include Pinterest, Shopify, Real Estate Economy, and Fido. So these, there's a half a dozen unicorns in California that use their platform to deploy their software at scale. Wow. Um, and they're five people, um, you know, a couple of engineers I've known for ages. I helped them put that company together. The, the founder came to me and said, um, we were, at a, we we're at a Rails camp once. And I went, hey, I've uh, got this thing over here. Earns about thirty grand a year. I think it's time for me to turn it into. I'm like, cool, but that's like thirty grand going to your personal bank account. Like, how do we turn this into a thing? So, got together the co-founder, raised a very small, one very small round in like three days flat. Yeah. And from that point on, they've been growing, you know, within their means, and they're just going like crazy. It wouldn't surprise me if you know all the the top end engineering teams are using them Phenomenal. to deploy their software in the next couple of years. They're just they're just a, you know again very focused. Just fly below the radar. Fly below the radar. Get it you done. know. It's interesting whenever you mention to VCs, like, cool, are they raising? Can I invest? I'm like, no, raising. Not really interested. You know, really happy to grow a really, you know, calm, you know, company. It's still growing like crazy. Global, you know, global mm. from day one, growing like crazy, not really on the VC bandwagon. Those guys, are, you know, a couple of founders, Tim and Keith, and have put together a really um, diverse team around them. Yeah. You know, got diversity as front and center. And I think the product reflects it really well. And I think that's it. I mean, we we um we don't have time for a huge deep dive into it, but you mentioned Basecamp, and I think that there is an alternative path for startups. I mean, admittedly, they took a big chunk of money from Bezos up yep. front, but um, Jason Freed's been very open around saying, you know, what he doesn't want to grow too fast. He doesn't have any targets. He's you know he's built a company that makes good product. He focuses just on doing a really good job of building a good product, yep. and everything else is you know is sort of a cream. And I think that there is certainly emerging. Uh, 
um, I think, two tracks for yep. startups, which is, you know, if you can build a really good product, maybe take some early capital, get cash flow positive early and don't grow super fast but grow steadily, you don't need to take on external VC capital and all yep. the complexity associated with that. I mean, 7% month-to-month growth is doubling every every year. Yep. Um, and, you know, for most companies, like – if someone said I double every year, you'd be like, hey, "Fantastic!" But yep. you know that may not be enough for people who, you know, who've who've sold a different story to their investors. Mm. So you just need to be really comfortable with with what you want that growth to be. And that's not to say that you're going to run a fish and chip shop and be a tiny little thing. Just that you need to make sure that you're all aligned on the pace with which you want to do that. Well, sustainability, I think, is is the, yep. is a really interesting over, uh, kind of uh, overriding theme of a lot of those businesses. Um, where can people find you if uh, if they're looking for you on the interwebs? Uh, yeah, I'm probably too prolific on Twitter. Just Matt Allen. Yep. Um, uh, websites at matter.io. Um, yep, and all the rest of the information's there. Fantastic, mate. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, pleasure. Take care. I hope you enjoyed Matt's episode. He's a genuinely nice guy and has a wealth of experience on how to make startups successful. Today's episode was brought to you by the Founder Lab, who deliver courses and programs to help build better founders. You can find out more at thefounderlab.com.au. And if you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. Have a great week and don't